Escape velocity. Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Escape Velocity Radio. I'm your host for today, Derek Hogue. And in fact, it looks like I'm your only host for today. Hopefully you don't mind. That might be a refreshing change of pace for you, especially, you know, today we have a lot of serious stuff to talk about. And uh, well, frankly, I'm sure some of you have noticed uh, when it gets to talking about some of the serious issues here on Escape Velocity Radio, more often than not, Chris is just kind of a distraction. So I'm hoping that maybe we can take a bit of a different approach today. Uh, we're going to be talking about I Don't Know More and everything that's been going on with that. So I'm pretty excited. And May I come in? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. What's up? Well, last month, we closed the episode by giving a shout out to I Don't Know More Chris, which is a grassroots Indigenous peoples movement here in Canada. It is? Much has happened since late December, and we thought it important to maybe summarize a chronology and key events that have taken place thus far in the I Don't Know More movement for our listeners. Good idea, Derek. I love it. I Don't Know More began, Chris, in October of last year of 2012 as a response to the proposed Omnibus Budget Implementation Bill, C-45, also known as the Jobs and Growth Act. Jobs and growth sound pretty good. Must be a great bill. Four women, Nina Wilson, Sylvia McAdam, Jessica Gordon, and Sheila McLean, were frustrated by the lack of consultation or debate allowed by the government on this massive wide-ranging bill. So they decided it was time to try and mobilize First Nations around Canada to do something about it. It all started with a tweet hashtagged I don't know more and it grew from there now wait a minute Derek that all sounds exciting but why the outrage over bill c45 well Chris let me tell you all about that this bill which is ostensibly simply a budget implementation bill is in fact a 457 page behemoth which amends 64 different acts or regulations in Canada so the most contentious of these changes, Chris, are to three particular acts. Stay with me here. Act one. The Navigable Waters Protection Act. Act two. The Environmental Assessment Act. Act three. The Indian Act. The Navigable Waters Protection Act. This dates back to 1882. And previously, it provided federal approval and oversight to any construction or pretty much anything being done across, over, in, or under any navigable body of water in Canada. Hmm. Now, the act had already been amended last spring with specific exemptions for oil pipelines, power lines, etc. Hmm. Hardly a surprise 
given the criminal nature of Stephen Harper's conservative government. But now it has been renamed the Navigation Protection Act Hmm. and has been completely gutted so that its rules only apply to the three oceans, which border Canada, and to 97 lakes and 62 specific rivers, which the Harper government have deemed important for commercial and recreational purposes. So now the rest of Canada's lakes and rivers, of which there are one or two, Mm -hmm. are now free from federal oversight, which could have dire consequences for the state of these waterways, especially with regards to First Nations people, because the waterways are now under provincial jurisdiction and First Nations' relationship with Canada is under federal jurisdiction. So the provinces can do basically whatever they want. They don't have to consult with the First Nations who might be impacted by changes to the infrastructure surrounding these waterways. So so it's a, it's a fast track for corporations who want to extract resources. Yeah, basically this all ties into uh, the plan to fast track all development uh, when it comes to uh, natural resources in Canada because that is where the money is. Got it. Second, there's the Environmental Assessment Act, uh, which has had its review times for major natural resource projects, such as oil pipelines, reduced by 300% in an effort to streamline the approval process once again and to limit consultation and debate. So it's short. It's a very short review time now. It's like you submit something for review and before you've submitted it, it's it's already done. It's accepted. Yeah. Okay. Now you have to understand that in Canada, most natural resource development disproportionately impacts First Nations communities because those communities and the natural resources for the most part exist in the northern regions of Canada. Right. Where, still, where they've been relegated to. Where they've been relegated to. Are you still with me here, Chris? Uh, I'm leaving. Finally, there are the changes to the Indian Act, which is the federal legislation that governs Canada's relationship with First Nations peoples. The gist of the changes here is that the government is pushing to make it much easier for reserve lands to be surrendered with little or no consultation with, let alone consensus within, First Nations communities. So that's bullshit. Yes. It's not just Bill C-45 that are making changes to the Indian Act. There's a host of other legislation, either already passed or on the table, which will adversely affect First Nations communities. Okay. And there are a couple of important documents I'd encourage all of our listeners to check out in this regard. We'll put links to these in the show notes. Okay. And please, everybody, go to the website, escapevelocityradio.com, and check them out, because it's uh, an important read, especially if you are a settler living in Canada. I am. Uh, The first is a summary of all these various pieces of legislation, including Bill S-2, Bill S-212, Bill C-428, and others. And they list uh, the important changes or provisions in these bills. The other is the latest issue of the First Nations Strategic Bulletin, which up until now I've never heard of. But this is written by Mohawk Nation member Russ Dybo, who's a longtime First Nations policy analyst. And there's an essay in there called Harper launches major First Nations termination plan as negotiating tables legitimize Canada's colonialism. In this essay, Russ Dybo goes in-depth into how Canada has made clear its intent to do two things with its recent legislation. One is to focus all efforts on assimilating First Nations into the existing federal and provincial orders of the government of Canada. And two is to terminate the constitutionally protected and internationally recognized inherent Aboriginal, and treaty rights of First Nations. So, Chris, it should be noted that these policies are not new ideas from the Conservative government. In fact, Daibo argues that these are the exact policies which were advocated in the 1969 White Paper on Indian Policy, which was commissioned 
under Pierre Trudeau's liberal government. So this is, a, this is an issue with the government of Canada generally, not just Stephen Harper's conservatives. All right. So the bills are bad, Derek. Right? They are. They they're are bad. very bad. They're very bad. They're, they're not very democratic. They're not in the spirit of fairness and justice, obviously. No. no. What was Idle No More's response? Things started slow with some protests across the country, but they really started to ramp up when, in early December, Chief Teresa Spence of the Attawapiskat First Nation announced at a special chief's assembly that she would go on a hunger strike if the government didn't respond to calls for urgent meetings on the state of the government First Nations treaty relationship. That was shortly followed by a call by the AFN, the Assembly of First Nations, for the Prime Minister and the Governor General to meet with First Nations leaders. Then, shortly thereafter, Chief Spence started her hunger strike, and there were several national days of action across Canada, with dozens of protests attended by tens of thousands of people. I saw you at one. Hey, I saw you at one, too. Remember Pat Martin from the NDP there in the round dance refusing to wear a hat because he wanted to get fucking recognized? Well, it was like minus 30 with a minus 45 degree wind chill. What a ding dong. Anyways, good he was there, I suppose. So in the midst of all this, Chris, Bill C-45 passed the House, intensifying the protests, which also expanded to include flash mob style round dances in shopping malls and outside government buildings across the country, as well as more militant actions such as highway and rail line blockades. So in early January, Stephen Harper did agree to meet with First Nations leaders, though notably without the presence of the Governor General. So for those who don't understand Canada's bizarre continued ties to the British monarchy, the Governor General is the Queen's representative in Canada, and he or she is in fact an essential party in discussing nation-to-nation treaty relationships with First Nations leaders. It is weird. So because of this, many First Nations leaders declined to attend the meeting because it was taken as just a token, non-serious gesture by the government. So this pretty much leads us up to now. The protests have continued. Chief Teresa Spence has just recently ended her hunger strike. Um, The results of the chief's meetings with Stephen Harper was a commitment to more talks, which many have dismissed as just business as usual. Right. They'll just try to deflate this whole thing. Exactly. Exactly. So, Chris, given all of this, yes. it got me thinking. It did? It did. Is there something that the musicians and the artists hmm. of Canada can do to show their solidarity with this movement? Like what? What if they were to stand up and yes. put out a statement right? that affirmed their support of oh. Idle No More and told all of Canada and the rest of the world yeah. that this is an important movement worthy of their support? Yeah, what if? Yeah, yeah, what if? What if? John Sampson, welcome to Escape Velocity Radio. Thanks for having me. John, on December 21st of 2012, you unveiled a petition in conjunction with Anishinaabe writer, artist, scholar, and activist Leanne Simpson entitled Canadian Artists' Statement of Solidarity with Idle No More. What inspired you to launch this petition? Well, actually, it was Leanne pretty much that inspired me to start it. Um, and I was kind of, I mean, it was obviously the, the I Don't Know More movement, which was, um, I was just kind of delighted by and, and was watching entirely from the sidelines kind of in awe and, and really um, kind of dazed and excited about it. And uh, Leanne emailed me one morning, I think the morning of December 20th, and said, uh, maybe it's time for Canadian settler artists to kind of show their support 
and wondered if, uh, if my partner Christine and myself could try and do something like that. So yeah, I basically just took some language from, from the Idle No More blog spot, which, which had some great writing on it and sort of crafted a uh, sort of statement and started sending it around to artists I thought would um, have some valuable comments on it, like yourself and uh, Sarah Harmer and uh, Leanne Simpson again, and got their comments and then sort of uh, put it all together and then really just sent it to a few artists who, who then sent it to their email list and it really just started from there. Yeah, you got some uh, genuine household names on this petition. You have yeah. uh, Feist signed on, Sheila Rogers, Gord Downey, Stephen Page of Bare Naked Ladies. You yeah. even got you even got George Samoleski. I know it's, it was a thrill to get George George's email. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but in all seriousness, those are names that even my mom would recognize. And, and yeah, did. yeah. Um, were you surprised by that response? You know, I was a bit surprised, but then, but then I wasn't because I've met some of those people and they're they're incredibly engaged. And I think, yeah, it was it was kind of uh, inspiring to me, but I wasn't that surprised. But I mean, a few of them surprised me, like Feist, I, who I, I've met a couple times but don't know at all. I'm not sure how she got the statement, but she just emailed and and said, "Please, please add my name." And so, yeah, I was I was pleased. Yeah, it's very impressive. On the other hand. If you were to read the comment sections of the news stories that carry the story of the petition, right. or if you've if you've actually attended any of the Idle No More rallies, say in Winnipeg, where uh, yeah. settlers drive by and give the finger to the to families right, that are right. par- participating, um, there have been some very ugly and uninformed reactions from some Canadians to the movement in general. Have you had to endure any of that as as a result of the petition? Well, not really. You know, I have uh, my New Year's resolution this year was not to read comments in the comment section. <laughs> so uh that's been a, it was kind of a lucky uh lucky time to enact that. So I've been kind of on the sidelines and haven't really witnessed any of that. I've kind of been in a bubble of I think like-minded people um which is a really large bubble I think right now, but um mm-hmm. but yeah, so I haven't I haven't firsthand kind of experienced any of that. But I know I know that um you know, I hear I hear from people Leanne for example has certainly experienced that. I know she's been sharing some stories with me about about her experiences um, on the front lines. So, Yeah, I was just wondering, John, like, given that uh, in Canada, so many artists and musicians rely on various government funding agencies in order mm-hmm. to make their work viable, um, mm-hmm. did any express any concerns to you over signing the petition uh, for fear of any sort of repercussions down the road? No, none did, really. And I was surprised by that, too, because I think, you know, the, we made the language really strong, like... Uh, you know, unequivocal support for the demands and actions was, was I think, really important for all of us who crafted the statement to have in there. So, no, I haven't really heard anything from that. I did hear, um, I was really impressed by Sheila Rogers, who's a broadcaster with, with the CBC, uh, and she was just, uh, like, overwhelmingly supportive, whereas Rand really wanted to have her name on there. But I know that uh, a lot of other broadcasters and journalists expressed to me that they would have liked to have been on there but couldn't be which i thought was kind of interesting i think they probably should be on there but but i'm not i i, I recognize that there would be repercussions for them but it's interesting you say that because i've seen a lot of um specifically cbc reporters of first nations heritage who are very publicly involved in mm-hmm. the animal movement yeah i agree and i think i think that that's that's important and and certainly justifiable and, and something they, 
should have the right to do. So yeah, I was sort of surprised by that's mostly where I've where I've seen people falter is is people who are working in the in the mainstream media. John, what's next for the co-signers of the statement? What would you like to see from the arts community going forward? And how do artists continue to show solidarity while resisting the temptation to jump in front of the parade and print up a cheap batch of Idle No More shirts? Yeah, that's a good question. Man, that's a great question. I'm not sure, actually. I know, like, we put the, uh, we put the statement up on, on the Facebook, and it's just, it continues, like, it goes in, in waves of, uh, of interest, but every day there's more and more um, signatures on there. And I think that that's, it's important just as a kind of, as what it is, a statement of solidarity, and just to make people kind of recognize, make the kind of reflexive racists pause perhaps when they see again a, a you know a list of that many artists and and many of them people they they admire who are who are supporting the movement but yeah i think artists should be at the at the leading edge of of movements like this to kind of report and tell the stories of what's happening so um i think there's a real role for artists but you're right it is there is a danger i think that it has to be led and understood that we're supporting the movement, we're not leading the movement. Yeah, the great kind of vibrancy of the movement has kind of resisted that and how how diverse it is um, across the First Nations community and and just how rooted it is in history. You know, like I think both of you guys, like me, our politics were really shaped by by the events at Kanesataki in, in the summer of 1990. And... Um, the publishing house that I that I work with here, Arbeitering Publishing, did a book in 2010 about the 20th anniversary of those events called This is an Honor Song. And I was just reading over that again this year and just thinking about how, how relevant um, those events still are and how uh, it was a book full of writing of First Nations writers of, uh, of you know, plays and poems and essays and from, from academics and people from all walks of the First Nations life and, yeah, how essential those voices are. Yeah. So, John, what do, you, what do you think about what you've seen so far from the Idle No More movement, and are you hopeful for, uh, for where it might go? I am hopeful. I think, I think um, you know, I was really interested in the, in the Occupy um, movement of the last couple of years, and I think that this is, um, this is actually kind of a nice response because the voices that I was most interested in during the Occupy movement were First Nations voices, you know, talking about that very label Occupy and reminding all of us again what that phrase should actually mean, like the, right. the great weight of history behind that phrase. So, so I guess, um, you know, for me, it's been, uh, it's been really exciting. And, and kind of selfishly, it's given me a nice, valuable new perspective, I think, on my identity as identity as an artist. I think I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of being labeled a Canadian artist. Right. And I think that this, again, these events have made me think about how actually I'm, I'm a Treaty 1 artist, I think. And that, <laughs> you know, and it, and it just makes more sense to me to think about it that way. And uh, so I'm really grateful for that. I think it's given me a new perspective on, on what I want to be as a writer. 
We should start using that term in general. Encourage everyone to start I using did, that term. actually. Are yeah, I just yeah? put I just changed all my bios actually and put instead of Manitoba, <laughs> I put uh, I put Treaty One Territory on there now. That's see, I'll idea. see how that goes. See if it fits. Yeah. Well, John, congratulations on the the so the so far the success of the petition. And, yeah, uh, thank you. Well, and considering our other guest is going to be. Uh, uh, Leanne Simpson, congratulations on that book you guys put out, that Dancing on Our Turtles Back. That uh, surprised yeah. me. Yeah, it's a tremendous book. I think I'm really, yeah. I'm really excited that ARP got to publish that one. Both all the the three books that Leanne's been involved with at ARP, uh, this is an honor song, and uh, Lighting the Eighth Fire and and Dancing on Our Turtles Back has been kind of like I, I feel like it's, we've fulfilled the purpose of starting the publishing house for those yeah. three titles. We've been really exciting for me for sure i was saying i was saying to derek that you know having immersed myself in the the numerous transgressions throughout history of aboriginal people in north america i've never i know nothing about their culture and this this book is kind of blowing me away with yeah uh, yeah with the new knowledge of it's crazy that i live here and i don't know i don't know anything even though i consider myself an ally i know nothing of the culture i know absolutely i feel yeah no i absolutely relate to that yeah Thanks for thanks for being here with us, John. No, I yeah, really thanks, appreciate John. it. Thank you guys for all your help too. Yeah, it's been a fun process for sure. Hey, John, just one more thing. Mm-hmm. What if we did a How to Clean Everything 20th anniversary tour? Just just for old time. John? John, you there? John? Sounds like someone forgot to pay his phone bill. Baker Lake to Yellow Knife Sun dogs chasing northern lights Derek, there was lots of good information that you provided there before uh, John came on here. I know. But I feel like people still don't get it. You know why? Why? I think people just tune out when you start talking about strings of facts that you've pulled off the internet. What was that? I didn't catch what you said there, Chris. I think we need to go find somebody who can actually give us a little more than just the facts, ma'am. I fully support this idea, sir. I think I know somebody who can handle this. Who? Leanne Batasima Sack Simpson is a writer, scholar, storyteller, and spoken word artist of Michisagig Nishnabeg ancestry and is a member of the Alderville First Nation. She holds a PhD from the University of Manitoba, is an instructor at the Center for World Indigenous Knowledge at Athabasca University. Leanne has worked with Indigenous communities and organizations across Canada and internationally over the past 15 years on environmental governance and political issues. 
Leanne Simpson, thank you for taking the time to be with us on Escape Velocity Radio today. Thank you, Chris. Can you explain to us what Idle No More is? Well, Idle No More has been characterized in the mainstream media as a, a new movement of, of young Indigenous people that are, are standing up for treaties, for land, for culture, and, and all of that's true. But I think that it's, it's not really a new movement. It's um, part of an Indigenous resistance movement that we've seen uh, for the last 400 years. And sort of every couple of decades or so, um, that resistance, that Indigenous anger kind of bubbles to the surface. And, and you get something that's visible to, to the mainstream media and to Canadians. So um, it started sort of in response to to the omnibus bills that uh, were gutting environmental legislation in Canada and uh, also tinkering with the Indian Act to make it easier for, um, for resource development uh, on reserve. And it has, um, it has, I think, spread and become broader than that. So people are talking about things like Indigenous nationhood, about environmental protection, about uh, cultural resurgence, about political resurgence, and about really changing the relationship that Indigenous nations have with the Canadian state. Things have happened very fast. And as you say, this hasn't come out of nowhere, but was there a particular event that, uh, in the timeline of events that spurred this whole thing on? Was it tree suspense? I think the, the, the hunger strikers or the fast that Theresa Spence um, has undertaken definitely uh, provided an urgency. I, I think that there's been, um, I know in, in my life, I've been sort of, my friends and my colleagues have been, have been doing the groundwork for, for this kind of a movement for, you know, our whole, our whole lives. So um, in that sense, I think, yeah, I think the omnibus bills was sort of a trigger. I think Teresa Spence and the other hunger strikers provided a, an urgency that you saw sort of propelled um, the movement in the, in the mainstream media over the Christmas uh, holiday. I think also social media has been a, a very important tool in terms of um, mobilizing a large number of people um, for specific actions. And I think in a sense, you know, in the old days before the internet, you used to go home from the protest and it, it was over. And now you go home from the protest and you're, you're, uh, all of the next steps are, are being discussed on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, we've had uh, a lot of really successful um, online town hall meetings using Spreecast and, and, and that kind of technology. Um, that one, that recent one at New Vic had um, 300 people in the audience, 400 more people watching online, and then 300 people were actually turned away. So these kinds of uh, events um, are, are becoming very, very important, and I think they're speeding up the pace of things. The pace has been, uh, <laughs> the pace has been really incredible over the last six weeks. The one last night um, was in Vancouver, and again, it was a similar thing. You saw four or five hundred people watching online, and uh, in a packed room as well. So it's um, a, a teach-in. You know, in the old days, you'd have two, twenty or thirty people, or maybe a hundred people at a teach-in. All of a sudden, now you're, you're able to have a thousand people from all over the all over the country um, at a teach-in. And I think those points of convergence um, in terms of dialogue and discussion and uh, inspirational energy have been really critical. 
Speaking of inspirational energy, what inspired you to encourage John Sampson to draft the artist statement of solidarity that came out in December? Why did you feel that was important for the Idle No More movement? Well, at the beginning of December, and even into the middle of December, we had uh, Teresa Spence sort of a, a week or so into her hunger strike, and the mainstream media was really ignoring uh, the movement. We'd had um, a lot of protests at that point that weren't covered, um, and we were having a lot of difficulty getting that mainstream media interested, um, and and therefore getting sort of mainstream Canada interested. And so I I was thinking and talking uh, amongst some of my friends about what kinds of things we could do and how we can reach out to those allies, to those people that I think, um, those settler allies that would be supportive of the movement, but that that maybe didn't know about it or maybe weren't weren't comfortable standing up at that point. So through that discussion, I, I sent John an email and asked him if he would be uh, interested in sort of um, rallying support from from some of his musician and artist friends. And he was... Uh, he was very supportive and, and jumped right on board. Yeah, I was kind of, uh, I'm, I myself was a little surprised at the household names he got to sign the petition. Were you surprised by the response he got? Yeah, I was surprised because um, because really in those those first early days, it was like banging banging your head against the wall in terms of trying to drum up support. So it was it was wonderful. And it was really important, I think, for two reasons, because I think it did cause a segment of, of settler society to pay attention that hadn't been paying attention before. And it was also a boost, I think, with inside the movement to, to just remind us that, yeah, we do have settler allies and they are willing to stand up and speak out. And I think for me personally, that felt really good. That was, I think I exhaled a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the petition in mind, what would you say to settlers who say they support the spirit or the essence of the movement, but not actions that are either extra legal or that perhaps more importantly tend to inconvenience their lives. For example, uh, even Thomas Mulcair suggesting Teresa Spence should quote dial it back. Right. That it that that dial it back comment sort of for me inspired inspired some writing um, about what fasting and what fish broth mean to Anishinaabe people culturally. And I think from, from our perspective, when someone engages in a, in a ceremony or in a fast, um, they, they do so with the, the support and the, the help of their elders, and, and that becomes a, a sacred and ceremonial process. So the job of the people around Teresa Spence, from a cultural perspective, are to support her. And so the idea that, that people outside of her circle um, are asking her to stop or, or, you know, demanding her to dial it back is something that's really pretty um, offensive to a lot of Anishinaabeg people. Now, I know a lot of people are really uh, concerned for her life, and uh, I am one of those people as well, but I, I think that has to be sort of balanced with her individual sovereignty and self-determination uh, as a woman, as an Indigenous woman, and, and as a leader of, of her community. What was the other the part of that question uh, it was it was more about people who they say they support the movement, but they disagree with the tactics, and it tends to be tactics that inconvenience their day to day lives. Right. I think well, one of the answers you've heard from Indigenous people is that colonialism has been a tremendous inconvenience on our lives for the last four hundred years. So the idea that um, you know in my community people were got very upset when uh, a round dance was in a in an intersection because they had to wait 15 minutes 
you know, while, while that protest finished. I would say to those, those, uh, those Canadians that um, it's really important that they understand the history of, of social movements. And even if you look at, um, you, know, you know, peaceful movements, Martin Luther King, those types of movements had to use tactics that inconvenienced, that were extra legal, that were, were nonviolent, but pushed. And I think that right now we've got a Canadian state that has been extremely aggressive and extremely violent towards our people. And I think that it's important to understand that when we're standing up and pushing back, that, that that's coming from, you know, this 400 years of, of violence that has been put on to, to our communities. So I would ask them for their patience and understanding. I would ask them to do some work and to, to understand how, how change societal change happens, and uh, I would uh, ask them to sort of ramp up the kinds of actions that, and, and tactics that they're, that they're willing to use. You know, if they're, if they're letter writers, then, then ramp that up. If they're uh, protesters and in, in a nonviolent and legal way, then, then ramp that up. Because a lot of these issues that are impacting Indigenous people and that are at the core of Isle No More also impact Canadians. Within the Idle More movement itself, clearly it's it's a diverse movement. There must be some commonly held goals. Uh, could you comment on what those what those would be? Well, I think that everyone is concerned about the land. Um, I think that that's a, a pretty common goal. I think that there's a, a pretty wide support for the idea that Indigenous peoples to uh, maintain our cultures, to maintain our language, to maintain our spiritual beliefs, need to have an intimate connection to the land. Um, and we also need to uh, develop the kind of economies that are sustainable and that are locally based. We also need to have that intimate relationship with the land. So I think that that's common. I think the, the cultural part of it, the language part of it, that spirituality part of it is, is also very common that everyone pretty much agrees on. I, I know that the this idea that it's that there's divisions within the movement has really been talked about in the mainstream media. And I know from my own my own experience, um I've never seen the kind of unity uh in my local community than than I've seen at the Idle No More rallies. We're getting we're getting elders, we're getting old time activists that have been at this for years. We're getting people who have never been politically active. Um there's a, a range of ages. There's kids. There's there's grandparents. There's uh, Indian Act chiefs and counselors. There's traditional leaders. There's just this really diverse group of people that are that are standing up. And I think the thing that unites uh, us at the end of the day is 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 land, uh, culture, and and language. Well, that was my next question, and it was a question uh, we kind of labored over because we hesitated to actually ask it because the mainstream media has been doing such a good job of concentrating on the divisions. Um, but amidst the diversity of Idlemore, there, there appear to be some divisions between people who might want to work within the existing system and those who want an entirely new relationship with the Canadian state. Is that at all accurate? And, and where would you put yourself on the continuum? I think the, la- the land itself is what's, if what's uniting us. I think that you're right. There, there sometimes is a split on, on how to achieve, um, achieve those goals. And there, is, um, there are people that believe that working within the system, whether it's in the legal system, whether it's engaged in, in the political system, or um, in, other, in other colonial institutions, they believe that, that that's the way forward. I think for my own experience, um, 
I think of this thing that our elders do when they take you out into the bush and, and our old people, because they, they grew up in, in the bush with this amazing uh, intimate relationship to it, uh, are always kind of watching the signs and the signals of the land. They're always watching the signs and the signals of the environment, the sky, the air, the wind, and they're reading that landscape. And after you've walked for a while, they will often stop you and get you to turn around so that you can catch the visual clues, you can read the landscape so that you're able to go back home, so that you know the way home. So it's a, it's a very practical sort of safety kind of thing that they're doing. But metaphorically, it's something I think we need to do with the Canadian political landscape. And if I look back on, uh, you know, the last 10 years or the last five years or the last year, I don't see within that, that uh, Canadian state, within that political landscape, I don't see any evidence that this government is interested in building a new relationship, that they're interested in hearing the uh, Indigenous perspectives on treaties and treaty making, that they're interested in, in um, repairing the damage that residential schools have caused, that environmental exploitation has caused. So I don't see any of the evidence, I don't see any indications other than them repeatedly saying we're interested in a new relationship. Um, I don't see any of that kind of evidence. So I'm on that spectrum, I'm thinking that I, I'm one of the people that is uh, very skeptical about working within the system. I think that um, Change will come from political dialogue uh, between the Canadian state and between Indigenous leaders. But I think, uh, I think the, the, um, the power right now is so imbalanced that uh, I don't think that we should, we should be negotiating at this point. I think uh, we've got a lot more decolonizing to do before negotiation, political negotiation is going to bring about the kind of changes that I think uh, Indigenous people on the ground are looking for. Can you explain what you mean by decolonizing? Well, I think for, in, for my own Anishinaabek nation, I think that we're in a, we're in a, a resurgent sort of stage. We're, we're rebuilding our, our nation. We're um, revitalizing our own political traditions, our own system of governance outside of, of the Indian Act system. We're revitalizing the way that our ancestors would make decisions or, or do international diplomacy. Um, and we're in, a, we're in a rebuilding stage, a resurging stage. So I think that we're sort of um, trying to rebalance things and trying to take a lot of the teachings of our ancestors and um, make them relevant in today's world. I think on the part of the Canadian state, there's also a considerable amount of decolonization that needs to be done in settler society and in, in, in the state itself in order to be able to come to the table and, and hear some of the solutions that Indigenous nations are proposing in order to uh, re reestablish a relationship that um, really was the basis of, of building the Canadian state in the first place, that, that treaty relationship. So I think there, there needs to be, I think the Canadian state needs to do a lot of decolonizing, and I think Indigenous nations are already on that road of, of decolonizing, of resurging, and of, of figuring out how to live in contemporary times as, a, as an Anishinaabek person. Leanne, resurgence is a recurring theme in your book, Dancing on Our Turtle's Back. And um, in that book, you uh, imply or state that Canadians don't know history 
uh, and can't apologize for something they don't know happened because the education system is designed to make to make us uphold the colonial system. So the settlers have to decolonize too. Is that is that the uh, is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, I I teach in uh, Indigenous studies um, in different universities in Canada over the last ten years, and oftentimes I'll get uh, students that are coming to Indigenous studies for the first time, and uh, they won't know whose whose territory they live in. They won't be able to name the closest reserve to where they grew up. They've now recently they've never heard of the Oka crisis, and so that sort of indicates to me that. Um, that uh, Indigenous issues aren't being talked about in, in uh, the, the curriculum of, uh, of Canada. And I think that that does a tremendous disservice to Indigenous people, obviously, but it does a tremendous disservice to Canadians as well. Um, so y- you've, you've, got this, uh, you've got this group of mainstream Canadians that unless they've, they've taken it upon themselves to, to find out about Indigenous people in our history and our perspectives, unless, you know, something has happened along the way that is, has given them that, uh, that um, drive to go and do that on their own. They haven't been, been given that in the school system. And I, I think that that's something that's, uh, as a first step, I think that that will go a really long way to, uh, to starting a dialogue um, and I, I think that it's something that can be done fairly easily. Yet, I, I don't see a lot of political will um, on the part of the provinces to sort of bring uh, Indigenous people into the curriculum in a, in a meaningful and substantive way. When I started reading your book, Dancing on Our Turtles Back, last week, I was kind of shocked and embarrassed how little I actually know about First Nations culture. And uh, it's kind of blowing my mind. So congratulations on that with the book. <laughs> Language. Actually, as an aside, have you seen anything that's happening in in southern Mexico with the Zapatistas lately? Yes. And yes. did did you see the communique from December twenty first, which was actually the same date as John's John and your petition went live? Yes. Where he talks about resurgence. I'd love to say that John and I coordinated that with the Zapatistas, but it, it's a <laughs> it's a crazy synchronicity. It's nice, yeah. And uh, even the language in the communique is very similar to what's in your book. Yeah, yeah. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> um, well, I feel like the Zapatistas have always been uh, been very inspiring to me um, because I think that they've uh, the unity, the the philosophical underpinnings of their movement, um, the the resurgence component uh, of their movement. They they've taken a lot of the. Um, the writing and the thinking, and they they live it, and so uh, I think that uh, yeah, very very inspiring. I think that um, that I learn a lot from the Zapatistas and their movement, and uh, it was a nice synchronicity. Yeah, totally. You think you think Marcos has been reading your book? <laughs> I I would doubt it, but <laughs> I'm certainly reading Marcos's book. <laughs> <laughs> Leanne, where does Idle Lamore go from here? Are you hopeful? I am, uh, yes, I'm more hopeful than I, I normally am. So that's a good <laughs> thing. Uh, I, think that, um, I think that there's a real opportunity in terms of allies, in terms of the environmental movement, in terms of uh, the Canadian social justice movement to hook up with, with certain elements in Idle No More and really push sort of for uh, the repeal of the omnibus bills, really push in terms of the legislation I think that there's also a real, a real opportunity for indigenous nations to um, build upon Idle No More or sort of dovetail 
work alongside maybe I don't know more uh, with an indigenous nationhood movement um, that starts to uh, connect people back to the land that starts to um, to get people uh, standing up for the issues that uh, that are meaningful to them in their communities by whatever means um, and tactics that that are meaningful in those communities because I think you know the the omnibus bills are removing environmental legislation and they're removing environmental legislation because Harper wants to get at those natural resources. So whether it's pipelines, whether it's fracking, whether it's mines or deforestation, those issues in the next months and in the next few years are, are going to intensify. And Indigenous people have a lot to lose in terms of that kind of intense resource development on our land. So I think that you're going to see, I don't know, more morph uh, into into those kind of land protection um, actions as well. Leanne Simpson, thank you for being with us on Escape Velocity Radio today. Thank you so much. It was an excellent conversation. Derek, what did you think of that interview I did with Leanne Simpson? I thought that was great. That was a really fascinating interview. Um, I love being able to talk to people whose views you're not going to hear in the mainstream, especially when it comes to this movement, because we've heard a lot of nonsense in the media. That's true. I'd really like to encourage everybody to read the book I referred to of hers in the interview, which is Dancing on Our Turtles Back. I have actually been reading it. What? Yes. Oh. I purchased it from the iBook store to read on my iPad. Oh, you're a nerd. I am a nerd. Uh, so far, I'm about halfway through, and uh, it is a very fascinating book. Yes. The interesting thing is that the book talks a lot about the stories that are used in First Nations cultures to guide people along the path of life. Right. And they're not unlike stories that would be in other uh, religions, whether they be from the Bible or the Quran or, or just, whatever. Just. But the interesting thing is that even though these stories are imbued with a lot of uh, metaphysical and spiritual language, they don't come at me that way. They seem much more like... Practical. Much more practical. Like, these are excellent lessons to be teaching people and passing down from generation to generation. And they're not filled with uh, judgment 
and hellfire and uh, moralistic posturing that you find in so many other dominant religions in the world, which I thought was very interesting. I think I know what you're saying. It, it, it's almost like it's it really is to, quote unquote, Canada's or Canadians' detriment to, to not know to not know this history, to not know this culture, to not know the culture, and when it, when when it's sitting there right under your nose, and you just ignore it, and and even worse, actively or passively snuff it out. Yeah, attempt to destroy it wholesale. Yeah, because we've all been colonized somewhere back in the chain of human events. We were indigenous to somewhere in some sense, you know, mm-hmm. and we had cultures and traditions. We 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 we. You are French. I am Irish. Yeah. I know nothing about my fucking heritage or cultures or traditions nor do i and neither did my parents or if they did they didn't think they were important because we were so colonized so we in canada as canadians who are first second third generation whatever we have been stripped of our traditions too at Mm -hmm. some point along the line by capitalism and this fucking western just a western worldview you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater to undo it i'm pretty sure that's illegal too so Dancing on Our Turtles Back by Leanne Simpson, published on Arbiter Ring Books. Leanne also has two other books, yeah. uh, which John mentioned in his interview. Yes. Lighting the Eighth Fire, which is a collection of essays which that she edited. And also This is an Honor Song, which is another collection uh, that she edited. Great books. Arbiter Ring putting out a lot of great books around Indigenous resistance, Indigenous traditions, and local publishing heroes. Check it out in the show notes. Derek, what's that you're doing there? I'm just looking through this uh, new book I got here. What's the new book? Oh, it's the new book by uh, William Bloom. William Bloom? Yeah. Isn't he the Washington, D.C.-based author, historian, and speaker who's published four books, among them Killing Hope, U.S. military and CIA interventions since World War II, which Noam Chomsky called far and away the best book on the topic? That's it's the very same William Bloom. And Rogue State, A Guide to the World's Only Superpower, which notably in a 2006 audio communique from Osama bin Laden, it was suggested that all Americans must read Rogue State in order to understand why America has been targeted by terrorist attacks. That very same Bill Bloom, it's true. Never heard of him. Well, Chris, Bill has a new book out this month, and it is called America's Deadliest Export. Grain. No. Oh. Democracy. Right, 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 right. The truth about U.S. foreign policy and everything else. Everything else? Everything else. So he knows about that time I... Actually, he told me that he does know about that time oh, that you... Oh, Jesus. I know, it's very embarrassing. This book is published on Zed Books and Fernwood Books in Canada. And I thought, Chris, this might be a good occasion to call him up and discuss the book and his writings in general. Did you know that Bill will celebrate his 80th birthday this year? Happy birthday, buddy! Bill Bloom... Thank you for joining us on Escape Velocity Radio. Thank you very much. So, Bill, uh, I'm wondering, how did someone who started out working in the State Department end up spending much of their life dedicated to documenting and analyzing U.S. misdeeds around the world? It, it can all be explained by one word, Vietnam. I was planning on becoming a foreign service officer and joining the glorious fight against communism. And this thing called Vietnam came along and just upset my my beliefs and values completely. And because of that, I met people who shared my views, and we formed a a group against the war, and 
I, I, I was radicalized by, by all this contact and, and, and the reading we did as a group. And before I knew it, I was standing in front of the White House, handing out flyers against the war, and, and hoping that no one from the, from the State Department passed by and saw me. So your early aspirations of becoming a Foreign Service officer, you know, was this informed just by the environment in which you grew up? Uh, the predominant culture of the time. You were just a, a pro-American, uh, rally the troops kind of guy, just by virtue of the culture. I was not. I was not a right winger, but anyway, I, w- I was liberal in general. Uh, but uh, in, in foreign policy, I fully supported what our government uh, did. I believed all the propaganda about us being the good guys and and the commies being the bad guys and so on. Uh, but without being a right winger, I mean, I was an average American, uh, an average brainwashed American. So, right now, how would you describe yourself politically or ideology? I mean, do you prescribe to any particular defined political philosophy? Yeah, well, I'm 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 a socialist uh, and a Marxist. I'm not so much a reformer as I am a, a revolutionary, although. Things are so bad here and, and in the world that even small amounts of reform can be welcomed. I mean, I'm not so dogmatic that I would uh, that to say that all or nothing. If we just stop bombing people every day, that would, that would be a major step forward. And at home, if we could lessen the influence and power of the corporations, just in a few areas, that would be a major step forward. I'm not expecting in my lifetime to see any kind of radical social change here. Your fifth book, America's Deadliest Export, Democracy, The Truth About U.S. Foreign Policy and Everything Else, is out shortly. Um, so tell us about the book. What's, uh, you know, what, can, what can our listeners expect to find out? It's a collection of my writings divided by subject. Mainly foreign policy, but not, not by any means only foreign policy. I go into all kinds of things like marijuana and, and abortion and, and, of course, capitalism and so on. Much of it comes from my anti-empire report, which is a, a monthly report I send out on the Internet. I've been doing that for about eight or nine years. And uh, many of the essays in this book are based on things in my report, updated and changed and, and, and improved in, in various ways. But it has a whole new uh, introduction, and uh, it, it's, I think it's a very good read. It covers a, a wide area, and with my usual uh, anger and humor. So, whereas previous books like Killing Hope you know, focused very specifically on uh, U.S. CIA uh, interventions abroad. Rogue State uh, focused, you know, more broadly on military uh, interventions abroad. This would be more of a, a general book that covers a wide range of subjects. Yeah, yeah this, this is Bill Bloom speaking about the world. <laughs> right. And right. the world is shaking in, in fear, yeah. People who know who know my writing and are familiar with my point of view are not going to be uh, surprised or shocked. Uh, my writing in any of my books 
and in my public speaking, the, the one has one main focus. I want to make people who share my views, people in, in the same movement, I want to give them the ammunition to change other people's thinking. Because, you know, I, I'm, people like me are accused often of speaking to the chorus, those who are already convinced. But that is not the way it works. The, the, the people who may be in my chorus, they have great gaps in their knowledge of the facts and of the ideas involved in, 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 the, in the issues I'm dealing with. And they're, they're easily changed by other people uh, and, and to, to a certain extent, because they, they, they don't know how to apply the lessons which I, I'm giving. They don't have the historical background and so on. I, I want to give these people the ammunition uh, to fend off conservatives who, who, who cross their path. And, and I, of course, at the same time, of course, to, uh, to attract many new people. You know, but, but I'm aiming, aiming mainly at those who are already, to some extent, in my camp, but, but need the, the ammunition which I provide. Uh, it could be for the neophyte or for the veteran activist. Uh, both, and, and I believe, need uh, to have their basic brainwashed beliefs um, challenged. And the, the main lesson that I try to impart is, is for, for those people who have a very hard time accepting people like me or what we say because they have a, 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 an un a basic underlying belief which stands in the way. Because this basic belief is that the U.S. government and its foreign policy, no matter what it does, it means well. No matter how bad it may look, no matter how, how many people we may kill and bomb, our intentions are good, honorable, perhaps even noble. And as long as a person holds on to that basic belief, no matter what someone like me says to them, it's not going to get past that barrier. That barrier of, of this basic belief is going to stand in the way. And so I, much of my writing and speaking in public has to do with dealing with that basic belief that the U.S. government means well, that, that its intentions are honorable. So, speaking of the U.S. government, uh, let's talk about Barack Obama. Here's a man who was seen by many as the new great liberal hope, a man in the White House who would finally champion reason and social justice. Uh, we're four years into his term, now into his second term. What is your assessment of Barack Obama, both on the domestic and foreign policy fronts? Well, on foreign policy, I'm, I'm really sorry to say that he, his foreign policy is totally indistinguishable from that of George W. Bush. In, fact, in some ways, even worse. And this is not a, something uh, I, I came to realize after observing him for four years. I felt this way even before he took office. Uh, and I've written about this in my anti-empire report on a few occasions, which you'll see in my new book. I, I predicted that he, he was no less an interventionist 
and, and, and no less a, uh, a bomber and killer than, than Bush was. And it turned out to be even worse than I thought. He, he's invaded, he's, he's waged acts of war against about seven countries. It's really amazing. And in things domestic, uh, one could po point to a few uh, small areas where he has shown an improvement over George Bush, but that that is, is, is not even close to being enough. Uh, he's still a a complete supporter of the corporate society that we have. Uh, he would not even mention any any alternative to privatized medicine. His, his medical plan, which is so attacked by the conservatives uh, in, in, in their stupidity, it's, if, the, if the Republicans had been in power these past four years and had carried out policies identical to Obama's at home, liberals in America would have no problem in attacking these Republicans. But because the same policies are being carried out by a Democrat, they, they keep their mouth shut. And I argued a few months ago before the election, I could see one good outcome if Obama was defeated. Then all the people on the left who, who keep their silence because Obama is in the White House would then feel free to, to join the various protest movements against him. But now that they, they feel tied because of him. So that was the reason I gave the uh, welcome in his defeat. I'd like to talk about the Middle East a little bit. You've talked a lot about the recent uprisings in Syria and Libya in your reports, uh, specifically taking the view on these insurgencies against uh, the Gaddafi and Assad governments that you know they were supported by the U.S. and also contained many reactionary extremist elements. But if you were to observe the coverage of these conflicts in most media, uh, they're very much painted as popular uprisings against repressive and authoritarian regimes following in the footsteps of uh, the Arab Spring. So in your view, what are the key facts that we're missing here in understanding these conflicts? Well, the powers that be in, amongst the, uh, in the West, in the U.S. and France and the U.K., for example, they don't care at all whether the leader in question is popular or a reformer or what have you. All they care about is, is, is his obedience to the Western powers and, and to, to NATO and the U.S. Uh, and, and, the, and the EU. Um, Gaddafi and Assad were not loyal subjects or reliable subjects of NATO and, and the U.S. and the EU. And that's, that's all that counts for them. They, they, don't, they, don't care about, uh, they don't even care about all these terrorists. They want, they're fighting on the same side as terrorists in, in Syria as they did in Libya. And the, 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 the ones in Libya show their gratitude for their, for their help from the West by assassinating the American ambassador and, and three members of the CIA. Uh, and it, the same thing will happen in, in Libya. These, these terrorists uh, are not going to show any gratitude. Uh, the, the, the Western powers are just insanely stupid in what they're doing. And, and they know, I mean, Obama and Clinton, Mrs. Clinton, they both 
commented in the past six months indicating that they know well that their, their allies fighting against Assad are al-Qaeda types. They know that. And, and they, 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 they express a slight embarrassment, but not, not too much. Uh, but that's probably the reason the U.S. has not intervened in Syria on the ground uh, or, or, or taken part in bombing, which they did in Libya. In Libya, they were, they were, they were a major part of the seven-month daily bombing by NATO. But in, in Syria, they're holding back a bit, and probably because of, the, of, of who their allies are. So it's very ironic but that they, they, they continue still to oppose the Assad government in various ways, uh, knowing that they're going to, if they succeed, which they will eventually, they, they will oust him, some of the terrorist groups will then take power. There might be a battle for power amongst the various oppositions, as, as, as has happened and is happening still in, in Libya. But uh, Assad will be out, and, and the terrorists will, be, will have a major say, and they'll attempt to impose Sharia law, as they, as they are attempting to in Libya. To the average American, this is a they, 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 they wouldn't even believe this in me if, if, they, if they were listening right now. They would think I'm making this up, and yet it's in it's in the news. If for anyone who's a serious reader and student of the news, it's there in black and white, coming from the, the lips of Clinton and Obama. But to the average American, this this is this is like homework. To keep up with this, it's it's like doing homework, and that that's they they don't care to do that too much. Surely there must be some truly grassroots origins to some of these uprisings you know these are uh, Qaddafi and Assad are certainly uh, uh, living under these regimes as no picnic uh, for the general population so w- what is the kind of confluence of the roots of genuine popular distrust and, and and revolt against these governments and then the US actors coming in to prop those up solely for the purpose of trying to back U.S. interests. Like, there must be a kind of push and pull there. Uh, they're, not, they're not purely fabricated. Yeah, the same could be said about the United States or Canada or any, any other country. There was, there was a large mass of, of the population which is very much opposed to the government and a large mass which supports it. It's nothing unusual or surprising to find that in Syria or Libya. In, in Syria... From what I've read, I would say that Assad is, was and remains very popular. You wouldn't get that impression in the headlines of the Western media, but that's a fact. He has had major rallies in his support in the period of the past two years. The same in Libya, maybe even more so. Gaddafi was a peculiar man with a bad side to him, but he also had a very good side. He was He was a a social reformer. He, he brought all kinds of benefits to the people of Libya and to the, the, the continent of Africa. He was a major force behind the creation of the African Union and uh, many other things. He was very generous with all of Africa, with, with, his, with his oil wealth. He, he was well, well admired and liked. But you wouldn't get this from the, the, the Western media. These two men are just painted as black. 
Assad and, and Gaddafi. But, you know, in, in, in one of my reports, I showed uh, videos of crowds of maybe a million people in support of Gaddafi. This is from CNN, you know, nothing not from the left. CNN showing these massive rallies in support of Gaddafi. And, uh, and, 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 and it was never showing anything comparable in, uh, against him in, in, in Libya. And, and the same in Syria, there has been large rallies. I guess now it's too dangerous to be outside, but he, Assad has a lot of support. So I'm, I'm saying all these things, it makes me look suspicious because it's so contrary to what the average American thinks, or maybe the average Canadian also thinks about these men and their governments. That's uh, mainly comes from headlines. One has to learn to read the entire story and, and read something in, in, the, in the alternative media as well. So how would these specific situations of Libya and Syria compare to what we saw transpire in Egypt with the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak, which there seems to be somewhat broad consensus that this was, for the most part, a genuine popular uprising uh, against a repressive regime. It, it was a genuine popular up- uprising, but th- those people, the ones who are not uh, Islamic fundamentalists, they have been very disappointed. It turns out they've replaced a secular dictatorship with, with a Islamic dictatorship. Uh, it's very sad. Uh, but those people, the, the ones who overthrew Mubarak, I think were shocked. And they're, they're in the process now of regrouping and attempting to salvage something from their, from their revolution. And they, they will get some concessions. They, they've gotten some concessions. But it's still basically an Islamic state. And it's going to be fascinating to observe that in the coming uh, year or so to see how, mu- how many other gains the protesters might manage to acquire. They're still uh, fighting against the threat of a Sharia law over their heads and, uh, and, and of the, the Muslim Brotherhood having overwhelming power in, in the nation. Cuba is another area of, of intense interest for you, it seems. You've been documenting the annual UN vote on ending the U.S. embargo against Cuba for many years, where the U.S. every year stands virtually alone in vetoing the resolution. Uh, the embargo is now entering its 51st year. Can you explain... What is driving uh, these continued crippling sanctions against this tiny Caribbean country? That is very simple. It's the same now as it was in, in 1959, the, the, in the minds of the powers that be in the U.S. It is the threat of Cuba establishing a good and viable alternative to the capitalist model. And, and thus influencing the rest of Latin America and, and, and the Third World. And that's what happened. Despite all the suffering Cuba has, has had imposed upon it by the U.S., Cuba has still been successful enough in its revolution to inspire people all over the world. There's, there's, there's maybe no other country in the world which has more loyal foreign supporters than Cuba. So the fears of the powers that be in Washington were, were not unjustified. They knew 
what they were doing and why they were doing it. And, and they're still doing it. And for the same reason, it's fear of a good alternative. So do you think that there is an end in sight for the embargo? Not, not, I'm not sure if it'll happen in my lifetime, or maybe in yours, uh, not in mine. It's very sad. Uh, when one sees what the Cubans have accomplished despite the embargo, one can only wonder about how things would have been without the embargo. I mean, just, it would have been, it would have been marvelous. It's marvelous now, I think. And, uh, but it would have been much easier. It would have been sent a message that the entire world could not ignore at all. But now it's very easy for anyone in power, anyone in the world who wants to disparage or make light of the Cuban accomplishments by just saying, oh, they're communists, they're dictatorships, and so on. I have, in my new book, I have a whole chapter on Cuba. Part of it, one part of it uh, questions why people call Cuba a dictatorship. It's not a dictatorship, and I, I go into this in, in detail. Now assassinated international bad guy Osama bin Laden famously suggested that all Americans read your book Rogue State, A Guide to the World's Only Superpower, in 2006. Have you received any endorsement offers from contemporary international terrorist figureheads for America's deadliest export, democracy? <laughs> I've got an endorsement on, on the book here from Oliver Stone, Noam Chomsky, Michael Albert, Edward Herman, Michael Corrente, Cynthia McKinney, and David Swanson, all of whom in the minds of some Americans are, are terrorists. <laughs> so I guess I could answer yes to your question. <laughs> no one who's officially with Al-Qaeda has yet endorsed the book. Would you accept an endorsement from an obscure Canadian podcast in Osama's stead? Yes. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today on Escape Velocity Radio. Thank you very much, Derek. You want to walk on TV screens! Not move from pain in human screams! You saw destruction from the sky! But never once you thought you'd die! The haunting sight of blood so sad! That never burned TV land! Watch our nation swallow shit! And make the war that brings us to the end of episode 7 of Escape Velocity Radio. Thank you for joining us, people. Did you know that the best way to find out about new episodes is to subscribe to Escape Velocity Radio on iTunes or with your favorite RSS reader? You can also help us reach new listeners by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or... Leave us a voicemail at 701-213-4483. That number again is 701-213-4483. Call me now. I'm standing by. You can also find us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash escapevelocityradio or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash escapevelocityradio. To listen to previous episodes and see the show notes and links to the music we play on each episode, do what I do and visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com multiple times a day to see if anybody's commented on past episodes, which they never have. Goodbye.